And now, the moment you've all been waiting for. Back from the other world. What's that called? Where they're all dead. Oh, I think it's Hill. Ooh. <laughs> or something. It's true crimes. And weird times. Hey guys, welcome back. We're glad to be back. We missed it. Yeah, we did. Look, life gets in the way sometimes and gotta make a decision. But we're back and we got a lot to share. We wanted to make sure we came back with a two-parter episode so you guys get a little bit of true crimes. And a little bit of weird times. Actually, it's more like three-fourths true crime. Ah, uh, whatever. Today, I will be telling you about Cynthia Anderson, a 20-year-old woman who spent a year having nightmares about being abducted before vanishing without a trace. Yikes. And I will be telling you about Big Moose Lake, which also has a murder. But it's also very haunted. Does it have mooses or meese? You know what? Maybe there's haunted meese. Probably. Cool. So let's jump right into Cynthia Anderson then. Let's do it. Cynthia Anderson, who actually went by Cindy, was born February 4th, 1961 into a very strict Christian fundamentalist household. Which, living in the South, I'm sure a lot of us can kind of relate to. Oh yeah, definitely. Now, because this case is over 40 years old, there isn't a whole lot of information about Cindy's life growing up. But by all accounts that I could find, she was a very kind and beautiful woman. And she was kind of shy, just kind of kept to herself. Yeah. But she had plenty of friends and she didn't have any trouble getting along with people. Everyone kind of liked her. Yeah. In 1980, Cindy was 20 years old and was working as a secretary at the Rabbit and Feldstein Law Firm in Toledo, Ohio, where she lived. One day, a strange graffiti message showed up on the side of the building next door to the law firm. Now, this message was written in direct line of sight to Cindy's work desk. Like, she sat at a desk, there was a window right in front of her, and right outside the window was this message. Okay. And the message said... I love you, Cindy, by G.W. Ew. Well, it depends. Who is it? It's always subjective, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> it could be cute if you like them, I guess. <laughs> now, as most of us would be, hmm. Cindy is really freaked out by this message. Uh, yeah. She doesn't know who wrote it there, and she definitely doesn't know anyone with the initials G.W. <laughs> no, thank you. So after about six months of having to look at this graffiti every day, Cindy finally got them to paint over it. But just a few weeks later, it was back and bigger this time. Oh, no. And again, it said, I love you, Cindy, by GW. Oh, gross. Now, shortly after the second message was painted... Cindy also began receiving harassing phone calls at work from an unknown caller. wonder if it was GW. Cindy would become extremely upset when mentioning the phone calls, but she never actually told anyone what the caller was saying to her. Really? Really. That's she, weird. 
people in her life, her parents, her sister, her bosses, they mm-hmm. all knew she was getting these phone calls and they knew that they were upsetting Cindy, but she hadn't told anyone what was being said to her. So we, <sighs> to this day, don't know what the nature of these phone calls were. I wonder if it was even words, like, or was it just... Just breathing yeah. or something. I don't but know. Still, that's so weird. Now, by this time, after, you know, six months of seeing this creepy message outside mm. and all these terrifying phone calls, Cindy started having just consistent nightmares of being abducted and murdered. Well, that seems pretty plausible. Right. She told her mother about these nightmares. Her mother would reassure her, you know, they're just dreams. You're totally safe. Mm -hmm. You don't have to freak out about it. But these dreams were like extremely detailed. She described one in which an acquaintance of hers knocked on the door. And when she let him in, he proceeded to abduct, torture, and then murder her. Oh, my God. Okay, so wait. She has all these dreams and can tell people about them, but she can't. She can't tell him about the phone calls, so I guess. Weird. I don't know. My only thought is, you know, this is the 80s. Mm-hmm. She's raised in a very Christian oh, household. Yeah. So my only thought is these phone calls could be sexual in nature. And right. she's too embarrassed to tell people what they're saying. I've, I forgot all about that. You're right. Now, the nightmare started around the time the graffiti messages went up. Mm-hmm. So it's most likely her fears and nervousness that caused all these nightmares to manifest. Well, yeah, naturally. You know, as it does. But there are people out there who believe the dreams were more of a premonition. Um, yeah, I can see that too. I mean, I'm not one of them, but there's people out there. I'm iffy about it. In the summer of 1981, after months of harassment, Cindy's bosses finally installed an emergency buzzer at her desk. And she could use this buzzer to alert the business next door in case she was in trouble. Wow. They also advised her to keep the doors locked at all times yeah. and only you know go let people in the office right. if they come up and this buzzer was actually i was impressed with it i mean 1981 well, yeah like that's an emergency call like it just buzzed to the business next door but it was yeah, a button but somebody at her desk she just push it it buzzes on they know what it is they come over to check on her yeah the fact that they they went that far even i know for an employee that's pretty impressive yeah now during that same summer cindy was actually making some pretty big plans she had decided to go to a Bible college along with her boyfriend starting in the fall. And by August, Cindy had already put in her two-week notice at work. Wow, okay. Cindy had also began spending a little more time on her appearance that summer. She'd started dieting and doing her makeup a little more. Now, I personally don't think that this is significant to this case. No. But it gets brought up in nearly every source that I could find. Is that she had started dressing nicer. And her dad in particular was very... Not okay with it? It wasn't that he wasn't okay with it. It's that he was very aware that it was happening. Like his little girl is suddenly trying to like dress nice and catch attention. And he is... Knowing knowing the Christian fundamentalist households, like that's not great. Yeah. So... But it's just her growing up, I'm assuming. Like, she's about to so. go away on her own. I mean, it does kind of point to a change in demeanor if she'd never done these things before. But, I mean, really, I think she was probably just excited about going to college and being more independent and, like, yeah. figuring out who she is. New Tom, new person. Right. You know. So it probably seemed like a lot of a bigger deal to her parents right. than it really was. Because her dad actually called her a debutante. 
Oh. Like she's turning into a debutante because wow. she's doing her makeup and dieting. Well, and you got to remember too, probably especially back then, like sure there was a lot of victim blaming. Oh, yeah. So that's probably in the cases case too. like this. Mm-hmm. So. On August 3rd, 1981, one of the law office's clients came in to pay some legal fees. While he was there, the phone rang and he watched Cindy pick it up answer it with i'm sure like a usual business greeting like Mm -hmm. hey call thank you for calling blah 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 but when the person on the other end of the line spoke cindy's face changed to this look of horror and she quickly hung up the phone Mm -hmm. almost immediately the phone rang a second time again cindy answered and then quickly hung up upon hearing the other person speak gross now the client that was in there asked cindy if everything was okay and Cindy said, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I've just been getting a lot of calls like that lately. But, you know, it's it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. Again, she didn't tell him what the caller said, who it was, even if it was a man or a woman. Yeah. She wow. didn't give him any information. But she again said, you know, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Huh. However, the look of sheer terror on Cindy's face when she answered that phone stuck with this person. <sighs> he said that, quote, Someone scared the hell out of her. And it bothered him so much that he actually called the police later and asked them to go check on Cindy to make sure she was safe. Wow. That's how terrified she looked. That this complete stranger called the police and was like, please go check on this girl because she was terrified. God, I wish I knew what they said. Me too. The very next day on August 4th, Cindy's bosses, Jay Feldstein and Jim Rabbit, came into the office around noon only to find it empty. Oh, no. This was especially strange because there was no note on the door. See, it wasn't unusual for Cindy to step out and run an errand. Oh, okay. They didn't mind that. Mm-hmm. But when she did, she would always put a note on the door saying, you know, I'll be back at this time. Yeah. So there was no note and they, you know, yelled out for Cindy, but they didn't hear her. She no. wasn't answering them. Yeah. So they kind of start looking around the office and they noticed that the phones had not been set to hold. Whenever Cindy was away from her desk, she always set the phones to hold. Mm -hmm. So as they're looking around more, they also discover that all the doors are locked from the inside. (sighs) The lights were on. The air conditioning was on. And even the radio was playing. So like she had already been there. Oh, yeah. It was very clear Cindy had been there. Their papers for work for the day were laid out on their desk, just like Cindy did for them every morning. They could even still smell nail polish remover in the room from where Cindy had just been there doing her nails. Oh, my God. I mean, you know how nail polish remover kind of lingers for a while. Yeah, oh, God, it lingers, yeah. But, I mean, it can't linger hours and hours. Yeah. And they also found Cindy's car outside parked in its usual spot but cindy's person keys were both gone then they made a really chilling discovery cindy's romance novel that Mm -hmm. she had been reading had been left open on the desk to the only violent scene in the book one in which the heroine is kidnapped at knife point oh my god you think it's coincidence or on purpose? That's one of those big questions in this case. We'll we'll get to it, but the person didn't have a lot of time in here. Uh, that's, yeah. So for him or her, I don't know, Yeah. to go and find this chapter in this book, like you would have to assume they knew the book. They knew that there was a right. violent scene. Like they knew where to find it. So unless this person had already read this book. Yeah. 
it was probably a coincidence, I would guess. Yeah, what I mean, a coincidence. There's, there's no way to know. Though. Yeah. It could have been completely intentional. Yeah. So obviously her bosses are like, okay, something's wrong. Her car's here. Purse keys are gone. It's like she vanished. Yeah. Everything's locked. I don't know what's happening. So they call the police. Mm-hmm. Police get there and they start an investigation very quickly, right. which is impressive from yeah. the 80s. So they start looking around. They start kind of going through things. And there's just not a lot to go on. I mean, there's no clear reason why Cindy had not used the panic button that they had installed for this exact situation. So they focus on the one thing that they do have, which is the initials GW. Mm -hmm. So police start tracking down anyone connected to Cindy with those initials. They quickly discover a maintenance man who not only worked in her building, but had keys to her office, whose initials were GW. Okay. Now, this person was questioned, he was looked into, but ultimately, police couldn't find any evidence to tie him to Cindy's disappearance. Mm -hmm. And he was ruled out as a suspect. Hmm. So, initials, probably a coincidence. But... Uh, It's too easy. I know. Ah, okay. He did, however, help them narrow down the time frame of her disappearance. According to this maintenance man, he had seen Cindy working at her desk at 9.45 that morning. And he didn't notice anything unusual. You know, she was sitting like she always does, Mm -hmm. working. He didn't think anything of it. So police go and check the phone records, and Mm -hmm. they see that no incoming calls were answered after 10 a.m. So that's only a 15-minute window for her to go missing. So whatever happened to her happened very fast, and it happened without a struggle. So like I said... convenient, Mr. Maintenance Man GW. 15 minutes. Is not a lot of time to go in and be like, let me skip through this whole book who I've never read before and yeah. see if I can find one where she gets kidnapped. Like, uh, I don't know. Or maybe Cindy flipped to it to give people oh, a clue. That that was my next guess. I wonder if she did it on purpose. Especially if she had read the book. I mean, maybe she was past that part already and she was like, oh, yeah. hey, I can leave a clue, flip back a few pages. That's still a weird coincidence. But it could have just been a coincidence. Yeah. Police were really working hard on Cindy's case because within just a few days of her disappearance, they had discovered two bodies in the trunk of a car just three blocks from where Cindy worked. Oh, my God. But despite their best efforts, police essentially had nothing else to go on. And eventually Mm. the bodies, they were not tied to Cindy in any way. It was just, hey, somebody's clearly killing people around here. (laughs) We need to get a move on. Mm. So despite their best efforts, police essentially had nothing. There had been no evidence left behind, and Cindy had never told anyone who had been calling her, if she even knew, or even what they had been saying. Mm -hmm. Hey, pro tip, always let somebody know what's going on. Right? Just in case. That's one of those things that's always stuck with me about this case, is that she didn't tell anyone what they said. There could have been clues in those phone calls. There could have been... You know, indications of, oh, maybe we can figure out who it was because they said this, this, and this. Yes. Maybe not, but we don't And that's not her fault that she didn't tell people. Oh, absolutely not. By any means. But, like, if that's happening to you, let somebody know. Always tell them. Or at least, like, write it down somewhere. Yeah. Don't tell someone. Write it down. Exactly. About a month after her disappearance in September, Detective Adams with the Toledo Police Department received a phone call from a very nervous woman who asked to remain anonymous. 
She was speaking in very low whispers, and she told him that Cindy was being held in the basement of a white house. Huh. She told Detective Adams that she was scared and that she had to go after she told him that. he kept, Oh. So he's asking her for more information mm-hmm. and trying to get her to stay on the line. Like, okay, what house? Where's the house? What's yeah. the address? You know, who lives there? And she just kept saying, you know, I'm sorry, I got to go. I got to go. I I'm scared. I can't oh. stay on the line. And she's whispering. I wonder if it's the house that, she's, that Cindy's also in. That's a good question. Well, after just telling him that, she hung Mm. up. A little while later, though, that same day, Mm. she called back. Yeah. Again, she was speaking in very low whispers, and she sounded scared. Mm -hmm. But this time, she tells him that there are two houses side by side, Mm -hmm. and that they were owned by the same family. She said that the family was out of town, but their son was home, and that's who was holding Cindy against her will in the basement. Okay. Again, when the detective tried to press her for more information, you know, an address, anything, a street name, she hung up. You know what else I thought of? Hmm. She may, didn't they have party lines back then where people shared the same telephone line? In the 80s? I don't know. I don't know either. That might be older. Could be. I don't know. It was just an idea. Now, police did not disregard this, obviously. They they were like, okay, well, let's go look. Mm Mm-hmm. So they searched for houses. They drove up and down streets looking at houses. They checked like records to see yeah. who owns what plot. Ultimately, though, there was just no way for them to narrow it down. It just was not possible for them to say, this is the exact White House that she was talking about. Now we can get a warrant and go see if Cindy's there. <laughs> Search warrants for all White Houses. <laughs> right? They would pretty much have to have searched every White House yeah. in Toledo, Ohio. Yeah, good luck. Good luck. And so even though this was a very promising lead, they couldn't follow up on it. They Mm -hmm. could not use it. And I'm sure that was just incredibly frustrating to everyone involved to feel like it's right here. We we might have her, but we can't find her. Oh, yeah. Police also did eventually find the person who wrote the I Love You, Cindy graffiti. Uh Uh-huh. But the only few places where I found this information that they Mm -hmm. found him, it was like two sentences. We found the guy who wrote the graffiti. He wrote it for a different Cindy. It wasn't him. The end. Boo. That's all that they tell us. Again, what a coincidence. Right. Did he really write it for a different Cindy? Or did he just say, oh, wrong Cindy. Sorry. Definitely wasn't me. Boo. I don't know. That's all I could find about it is that they found him and it wasn't him. Ugh. Wrong Cindy. Well, did his name start with a GW? I don't. They don't even say that. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I assume it did. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I guess so. After they find the graffiti guy, the case pretty much goes cold. Mm-hmm. They don't have anything else to work on. Cindy was at work and then she was gone. And that was it. Yeah. That's all they had until November of 1995. Oof. That's 15 years, right? It, yeah. Okay. The police finally announced that they had a suspect. Huh. Two, actually. Their names were Richard Neller and Jose Rodriguez Jr. Okay. Now, Rodriguez was allegedly the ringleader of this massive drug operation in Toledo. And his lawyer, Richard Neller, happened to be in on it. And wouldn't you know it, in August of 1981... Richard Neller was working for the Rabbit and Feldstein Law Uh, Office. He uh was one of Cindy's bosses. Oh, she was one of she was his secretary. Yeah, 
So police announced that they have a theory that Cindy overheard something between Neller and Rodriguez at work about their drug Uh operation. During their trial for the drug operation charges, a witness testified that Rodriguez had actually confessed to killing Cindy. The witness claimed that Rodriguez killed Cindy to send a message to Neller for not adequately representing him at a previous trial. What? Hey, lawyer, you did a bad job. I'm going to kill this girl that works with you. Now you'll do better. (laughs) Take that as a warning. Like That doesn't even make sense. I know. Just scare him into doing better, I guess. Boo. So while both men went to prison for drug trafficking, police were actually unable to verify anything about Cindy's disappearance connected Mm. to these guys. Both men denied any involvement. And since there was no body, no crime scene, no evidence, police just couldn't prove anything. This was all a theory. Yeah. Hey, these two bad people were at her office a lot. It was probably them. That was it. And while it is a very plausible explanation... It also wouldn't be the first time someone bragged about a crime that they did not do. That's very true. Also, according to Cindy's father, had Cindy actually overheard any illegal business being conducted in the office, she would have immediately called the police to report it. Like, that's not something she would have kept to herself. She would have told somebody is what her dad claims. That's according to her dad, who can have very biased eyes. I would say that about my own kids. Right. Um... It depends on how scared she was. If she was scared, look, I'm about to go to college. I'm about to get out of all of this anyway. Like, you know what? I only got three more weeks here. Maybe I don't have to, you know. Yeah. But, you know, if it was these guys, were they the ones calling her? Or was her boss calling from her office? That doesn't sound very plausible. The other guy, Rodriguez, could have been calling her. Yeah, but. But if he was just trying to send a message to his lawyer, why harass her for months on end before? Yeah. Unless the message wasn't getting to Neller. Uh, hey, look Since how she's scared not telling- I have Cindy. I don't... <sighs> I don't know. I, I get it. This is a very plausible explanation. But it's still very weird. It's just not... It doesn't answer all my questions, yeah. I guess. And doesn't it always go this way, though? Since that time in 1995, mm-hmm. there have been no new leads in Cindy's case. And it still remains open and unsolved to this day. Oh, that's frustrating. Now, there are a few things that I wanted to discuss with Ashley because (laughs) I just have so many questions. Yeah. For one, we already talked about why didn't she tell anyone about these phone calls? That's the most frustrating. Like, she could have at least told somebody. Or at least vaguely (sighs) alluded. Like, oh, they're very dirty phone calls. Yeah. Or, oh, they're they're terrifying because he's threatening violence. It doesn't, she didn't, you know, I just, I don't understand why she didn't at least give a hint to someone of what these phone calls yeah. were. And also, why didn't she use her panic button? If the book is set to be open, she either had time to go to the desk and open it, mm-hmm. or she was reading it. Right. Which means she could have been sitting there. It doesn't mean 100% she was sitting there. So, so yeah. If she had been up and walking around the office and he surprised her sure. yeah but all the doors were locked from the inside right so either the door had been left unlocked and they walked in or cindy went and let this person in well see she was already keeping it locked she was and she, so she probably would have had to let this person inside the building yeah and that tells me that she didn't know who this person was if she was afraid of them she wouldn't have let them inside right one if it were an Eller and Rodriguez, she would have opened the door. 
and let him in. Most likely, okay. I would say. Or Neller should have his own key. He worked there. That's, that's true, too. However, if all the doors were locked from the inside, all I'm saying is that maintenance man is still there. And he can get in. And he saw her. He did. He says he saw her. Mm-hmm. See, I always kind of wondered about him, too. They're like, okay, just kidding. It wasn't him. Like, how yeah. do you know it wasn't They him? should have dug a little bit deeper on that one. And maybe they did. This is information we're getting from the 80s. That's I'm true. sure they didn't tell the media everything. <laughs> maybe they really did dig into this guy, and they're like, no, he definitely wasn't the one. Yeah. I just, I don't it's have that odd. information to know that they did, so it's frustrating to me. But they really may have. Look, I watch too many movies to not, <laughs> to not think it's the maintenance guy or... <laughs> My only idea was, and she did take her purse and keys, though. That's true. So, see, she, mm, I don't know. Why let her grab her purse if you're kidnapping her? Was she grabbing her purse and keys to walk out the door to ride in, to, what if to she run was an errand? Leaving? If it was locked. But then wouldn't the she have already written the note for the door or put the That's phones on true. hold? That's true. My only idea is that this person had a knife or a gun on her and she was too afraid to go push that button. Yeah. Or she was away from it. Or she couldn't get to it, yeah. yeah. But whatever happened, with him getting her out of there in a 15-minute window, he had to have had some kind of weapon. Yeah, there was some just, force. It had to have. Come on with me or I'm going to kill you. Right. And she probably just did what he said. And also, who was the woman who called in and said that Cindy was in a White House? Right. Is this someone who was also captive? Is that why she was lis- like whispering? Yeah, but wouldn't she have said... Help yeah, me. me too. Come get us. So my other thought, that's a good point, was maybe she has some sort of relationship with the guy holding that, Cindy. Yeah, that's what I wondered. And she's afraid of him. Maybe a sister, a neighbor, a girlfriend. Could have been a girlfriend. Like, hey, he's got this girl. I can't tell you anything. He's going to kill me too if he yeah. finds out. Like, Especially if they're involved in drug trafficking. Like, Right. I mean, it could have been. Or this could have been a kind of totally people- different person. Yeah. She never says who has him, just that it's a family. Yeah. So assuming this has nothing to do with Neller and Rodriguez, Mm -hmm. like who could this person be? Why was she whispering? Why did she call in in the first place if she wasn't going to give them enough useful information? Right. She probably was trying to. She was probably afraid to. Well, and that doesn't sound like a call that's a joke. It could have been a prank. I mean, people (sighs) do some really, really screwed up stuff yeah but she didn't make herself known she didn't say hey this is jane you know whatever Mm -hmm. well look how many fake ransom notes families get after Uh, someone is kidnapped that's true so it could have been someone who had some mental instability calling in even but what if it was real what if this woman really knew where cindy was and police just could not find her. If it was real, at some point, she would have been able to give information. Unless she was also in the house and captive or whatever. That's true. If it was real, why didn't she come forward, you know, 20 years later? Yeah. And say... After they were in prison. Whoever it was or got away from them. Or maybe yeah. she never got away from them and they kept doing it. And it was no longer something she tried to prevent. That's true. Uh, who knows? Yeah. That one's a really, really big mystery yeah. for me. Is, is this real? If it was, why? why? What happened? And then as for the boss theory, mm-hmm. would this guy have actually taken her out to try and silence Cindy? Like, was 
Rodriguez, the one making the phone calls. Why would she continue working there if she was afraid of her boss? Exactly. If she thought, hey, I overheard one of the lawyers who works here doing something really sketchy. Now I'm getting really threatening phone calls, probably connected. I should find a new job. Yeah. But she didn't. I mean, she had put in her two weeks notice, but that was to go to college. Yeah. And if they knew she was leaving anyway, why go ahead and kill her? To send a message? Uh, to, to who? The lawyer? I mean, that doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't know. It's, I like the theory, but I can't make it fit all well, of the, and I think, the pieces. Well, I wonder if the police connected this whole theory just to maybe ease. Just to say, hey, we've got something. Yeah. But because it still doesn't answer anything. For years, all they had to go on was... Cindy got creepy phone calls. There was graffiti. Oh, turned out it wasn't related. Now we have nothing. Yeah. So maybe they just were desperate to find anything they could give to the family. I guess so. But the case remained open. So like. It did. And actually at this point in time, it's been 41 years since Cindy's disappearance. And her case is still open. And to this day, no further evidence has ever been found. Unfortunately, both of Cindy's parents have passed away, and they passed away without ever knowing what happened to their daughter. But, you know, maybe someday we'll get those answers. Maybe someday that woman who called will come forward again and say, hey, that was me. Here's what happened to Cindy. But until that happens, I don't think we're ever going to know. Okay, so this story is kind of uh, a little short, a little sweet, but it's got a little bit of true crime and a little bit of weird times. So. That's what we like. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about Big Moose Lake. It is... I love the name. Right. It is located in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. It's pretty large. It's about three miles long and one mile wide. And it even reaches about 70 feet at its deepest. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty big. It's the source of the Moose Rivers, which flow into the Great Lakes. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. These days, it's just a tourist attraction, a tourist location where visitors can boat and do other watery things. Lake things. (laughs) Lake things. Lakes smell really bad. I don't go Oh, that's fair. (laughs) That's fair. Um, I'm sure there's some hiking, some boating, fishing. I don't know. Something you would need granola bars for. (laughs) Uh, get some trail mix yeah but it's also known as a haunted area and its origin story is kind of scary i'm i'm ready all right let's do it so our story begins in 1904 with a beautiful young woman named grace brown now grace was a farmer's daughter who had lived in atselic i'm so sorry (laughs) new york (laughs) however she worked as a seamstress at Gillette Skirt Factory, which was actually located about 50 miles away in Cortland. Gillette made skirts, not just razors. I, you got to have the skirts to sell the razors. I guess so. I'm just you don't, I don't think wear, it's the same thing. If you're not wearing a skirt, why do you even need to well, shave need your to legs? <laughs> now, the owner's nephew, Chester Gillette, that's why it's named Gillette. It's not the razors. No. Huh? Oh, okay. You never know. <laughs> Uh, took notice of Grace, and Chester was known as a womanizer, and it wasn't long before, you know, he eyed her, and he was trying to start a relationship with Grace. It wasn't, it was only a matter of time. 
Now, they dated around for a little bit, and it was only two years into their relationship in 1906 that Grace discovered that she was pregnant. Scandalous. Mm-hmm. So, skirts. <laughs> Should have been shaving them legs so much. <laughs> now, of course, she tried to convince Chester to marry her, but Chester's a womanizer. You think that's going to work out very well? He can be tied, tied down with a baby. Right. And uh, he wasn't keen on the idea. Uh, in fact, it made for some pretty heated arguments between he and Grace. I can imagine in 1906. Mm-hmm. Chester finally said he needed just, just give me time to think about it. You know, let's just take it slow. You know, let's go on a break. <laughs> Grace finally moved back with her family in their home in Otselic. But she still wrote to Chester because they were still technically together. And she was pregnant with his And baby. she was pregnant with his child, you know. <laughs> uh, but it was, I mean, it was constantly I mean, begging him to marry her. Like, please, let's just make this. Well, yeah, because she's going to be the one who's unmarried exactly. and a mother. Exactly. And he can just, like, run off and say, whatever, tough luck, girl. Yeah. In the 1900s, that's not going to be real fun for her. After a while, she finally moved back to Cortland. And then she found out that Chester was spending their break seeing other women. Whoops. Mm-hmm. We were on a break. Tale as old as time. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> yeah. So once again, you know, Grace tried to convince Chester to marry her. She told him that she didn't want to worry her mother if she found out that she was pregnant before marriage. I don't know how she was hiding that while living with her parents. She must have been real early on. Yeah, that's also, what I'm assuming. corsets were probably still a thing, so. Oh, could you imagine Trying to wear a corset while you're pregnant? Oh, that poor baby. No kidding. Somehow this changed Chester's mind. That was enough. Oh, your mom's going to be mad? Okay, totally. Oh. Let's get hitched. I'm skeptical. Hmm. He said, okay, yeah, fine. Uh, Let's go on a, before we get married, let's just go on a romantic trip together to the Adirondacks. Oh. This summer. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, stories differ about this, but some say that Grace either thought he was going to propose to her. Or even just marry her while they were there. I mean, it makes sense. If he's like, okay, fine, let's get married. Let's go on this romantic trip. Like, my first thought would be, oh, romantic trip. He's going to propose. It's, yeah. It's wedding time. It's about time, man. Here's here's the thing, guys. If a man doesn't want to marry you, then suddenly says, let's get married and go to the Adirondacks. Don't do it. Probably not. <laughs> but maybe she just didn't listen to enough true crime podcasts. And then, yeah, probably. <laughs> So they took this trip together. They stopped at Big Moose Lake. And there they had rented a canoe and they rode out to this lake. They were going to have a nice little romantic uh, rendezvous on the lake. I guess. (laughs) I guess. Uh, And it was there that Chester then struck Grace with a tennis racket and she fell into the lake and drowned. Well. Tell as old as time. Yep. Now, at first, when the couple didn't return, Gio wonder why, hmm. people assumed that they must have, you know, maybe they got stranded at the lake. Maybe they couldn't get home. Car broke down. In the lake? Horses broke down. Car. It's probably a car by then. I don't think they were driving the car in the lake, though. They went no, not in the canoe. lake. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, a search party went out to go look for them. I mean, naturally. Especially considering Chester, Gillette, you know was kind of owner of the company he was probably a bigger name in the town Mm -hmm. you know but what they found was an overturned boat in the southern bay of big moose lake 
and Grace's body was later found washed up on the shore. Mm. And her face and head were covered in lacerations. I'm assuming from one being hit, but if she was also in the lake. I mean, it kind of sounds like you beat her up. It's possible. As much as they know, she was hit with a tennis racket, but he could have like. We don't know how many yeah, times he hit her with exactly. that tennis racket. Especially from being in the water, too. I mean, she was, I'm sure she was already decomposing. Yeah. Animals, fish, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know. The autopsy revealed that Grace had bruises on her head. And a four-month-old fetus inside of her. Oh. So, yes, you're right. She was pretty early. Chester Gillette was later arrested for murder at the nearby Arrowhead Hotel after being identified by a witness. So, he didn't even, like, run far away. He no, just he like, just... Let me go get a room over here. Well, I'm here. Let's just go ahead and finish the vacation. <laughs> Jeez. Now, during his trial, Gillette at first claimed that Grace Brown had jumped into the lake to commit suicide. And he even had letters from Grace stating that she wanted to die. However, I'm sure those letters were, if you don't marry me, what am I going to do? I just want to die. Mm-hmm. You know. I might as well not be around if I'm going to be a single mom in 1906. Yeah. Gee. Kind of can see where she's coming from. Yep. He also claimed that he tried to save her, but the boat capsized, you know, when she jumped to commit suicide. And then he went and checked into a hotel because, well, she's dead now. What am I supposed to do? Tell somebody? Uh, whatever. Well, I got to finish that vacation. The jury took almost five hours of deliberation, which... I feel like that's really not that much It's time. not that much time. Mm-mm. I mean, some have taken longer. Some have taken less, but... Yeah. But they ultimately found Gillette guilty of murder in the first degree, and he was sentenced to death by electric chair. And he was executed two years later on March 30th, 1908. Well, good. Yep. Yeah. Pretty uh, open and shut case. However, this is the weird times portion. Since her death, Grace Brown's ghost has been seen in and around Big Moose Lake. Ooh. Her figure is often seen drowning. Ooh. Which is awful. Especially if you're just kind of camping there one night and you're like, I wonder if you can hear it. Or, like, can you imagine being like, oh my God, someone's drowning. Let's go save them. And then no one's there. And then no one's there. Ooh. My first thought would be like, oh, I was too late and they're dead now. Like, in calling the police. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's I would, terrifying. I would never go, oh, probably a ghost. I, I like, yeah, I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't be doing ghost. Uh, but some have also reported seeing her just walking along the shore of the lake, even visiting small cottages and settlements nearby. And I don't know what they mean by visiting. Like, is she just passing through? Is she like... Knocking on the door? Hey, and Frank, then... how you doing? Oh. I don't know. Like, it just said that she was seen visiting. I guess just appeared? Maybe just walking through. She's also been known to try to extinguish out all the lights in the houses. Who could you imagine that, though? You're sitting in a cabin, and all your lights go out, and then you see a face in the window. Oh, that's like one of my worst nightmares. I intentionally try not to look out windows at nighttime. Oh, yeah, definitely. Hey, we we live down here near, what, the Appalachian? Mm-hmm. The Appalachian? The Appalachian. You don't answer. <laughs> you don't answer doors and look out windows at night. Nope. <laughs> Did you hear a sound? No, you didn't. Uh-uh. Was that a bobcat dragging a cat out into the woods or is somebody being murdered? It doesn't matter. We're not going to check. <laughs> Don't care. <laughs> now, I couldn't find a lot of specific stories from those who have claimed to see her ghost. But I did find one on the Unsolved Mysteries website. Oh. Yeah, that gave me some information. During the summer of 1988, several employees working at the Covewood Lodge on Big Moose Lake were walking towards the staff lodge. I'm assuming, like, for the month. 
When they walked into the staff lodge, Rhonda Busolo reached out to pull the string to turn on the lights at the top of the stairs. Hey, kids, if you didn't know, used to, you had to turn lights on with a string. Oh, yeah. My <laughs> great-grandparents' house, their bedroom, you know, you had to oh, use the yeah. string. So they had this tiny little chain pull on their light in the mm-hmm. middle of the room and a string tied to that to, like, one of their bedposts. Oh, so genius. So they could reach up and pull the string in bed to turn genius. the lights off. God, that used to scare me, though. Like, you had to walk down some stairs in the dark. To bef- pull bef- a light switch. Yeah, yeah, to pull a light switch. It's terrifying. Um, So she was, anyway, yeah. <laughs> she was pulling the string to turn the light on. Uh, but before she could turn on the light, she had a feeling come over her that someone was there, like, watching her. Now, she wasn't frightened Rhonda wasn't frightened but she couldn't move like she was just kind of paralyzed but outside her and three other employees saw Grace Brown there by the lake just chilling I guess oh so you can't turn on the lights (laughs) then you can't move and then everyone sees a ghost and then everyone sees a ghost that's terrifying no thank you that's the biggest story I could find now there are accounts Big Moose Lake come up a few times about hauntings but the only one i could really find was grace brown and it was based on truth an actual story right so i'm not going at night i might not go during the day either i'm not going at all. i don't <laughs> like lakes i was gonna they say you like and they, yeah you're not going i don't like nature <laughs> uh some other places where you can find grace brown's story pop culture has been inspired by her story and her death Theodore DeRozer based his book An American Tragedy on her story. Oh. If you'd like to go read that. A movie called A Place in the Sun, which is a movie that actually starred Elizabeth Taylor. Oh. Shelley Winters and Montgomery Clift was actually an adaptation of DeRozer's book, which was based on the story. And Jennifer Donnelly based her historical novel A Northern Lot on the murder. Oh, wow. So this is like a pretty well-known thing that happened. Yeah. So... Little bit of true crime, little bit of weird time. A lot of ghosts. Not a lot of well, ghosts. I guess just the more one ghost. <laughs> more murder than ghosts. Also, probably deadly creatures and some moose. So, there's at least a few meese there. <laughs> some meese, too. Thanks for listening. Like us on Facebook at True Crimes and Weird Times Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at True Crimes Weird Times. Email us your stories at truecrimesweirdtimes at gmail.com. Can't wait for the next episode? Check out our Patreon for bonus episodes and more. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.